0: morning everyone. Please join me in prayer. Lord, refine our mind and focus our thoughts. In your presence this morning, open our hearts and minds, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, enable us to hear your word and accept it with joy. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 136, and this morning I invite you all to read responsively with me. I will read the first part of each line and I invite everyone together saying out loud the text in italics, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders, his love who by his understanding made the heavens,
1: his love
0: who spread out the earth upon the waters, his love who made the great lights, his love the sun to govern the day, his love the moon and stars to govern the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, and brought Israel out from among them, with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, to him who divided the Red Sea asunder, and brought Israel through the midst of it. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. The universe, to him who led his people through the desert. The universe, who struck down great kings. Universe, and killed mighty kings. Of universe, Sihon, king of the Amorites. Of the universe, and Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as inheritance. In inheritance to his servant Israel. To the one who remembered us in our low estate. And freed us from our enemies. And he and who gives food to every creature. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Zach. You got a lot of screen time today. (laughs) About Thanksgiving, of course, uh, this is a classic, classic Thanksgiving psalm. It's very well known, uh, probably frequently used by Jews in worship, and the reason that I ask you to read this responsively is because, as far as we know, in ancient Jewish worship settings, they would have read it the same way. They would have read Hebrew instead of English, but but the way we read it is probably how they read this thousands of years ago in ancient Hebrew worship settings. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever. Now, here's what I wonder, uh, as I've been kind of reflecting and meditating on and studying this text in this psalm this week, did you get bored? You, can be, you don't have to answer out loud but be honest with yourself. Did you get bored reading that same line his love endures forever over and over and over? 26 times was that boring. You can be honest, Jesus knows your heart anyway so you don't have to be afraid of, of saying like yes or no. Um, this morning We're going to think about Thanksgiving through the lens of, and this probably isn't the best word, but boring Thanksgiving. And I picked boring Thanksgiving because it was the best I could come up with before we had to print the programs. And then once the bulletin's printed, it's just locked in. So that's what we're stuck with this morning. Um, But it was inspired by, I had read this article a couple months ago by an education professor, a Christian education professor. His name is Kevin Gary. And here's what he wrote. He was writing this in the context of a worship service, but this is true for prayer and for all of life as well. He wrote, with a liturgy, and a liturgy is just the stuff you do in a church service. So everything we've done this morning is liturgy. We don't use that language, but that's what it is. With a liturgy, he says, there's nothing going on. And then there are epiphanies where all of a sudden significance breaks through. There is a lot of tedium between the beginning and the end. But then there are moments of, oh my goodness, this is joy. But you have to be patient with the bored state. You have to be patient with the bored state. The title of the article was You Should Be Bored in Church. That's a pretty good title for an article, isn't it? His love endures forever. His love endures forever. Love endures forever. <laughs> like there's a sense where that may have felt boring to some of you because there's some tedium. There's just the same thing over and over and over. And I would venture to guess that when the ancient Jews recited this psalm in worship, maybe they got bored with it too at certain points. Maybe they started tuning out too. And as they were saying the same words, their minds were wondering, can the Pats really pull it off against the Jets this afternoon? Anybody else? huh) You don't want to admit it. Some of you probably felt that tedium. And yet, through the tedium and through the boredom, there are, there are moments when significance and meaning burst through. And maybe, probably not all, but maybe for some of you, just by reading the same thing over and over and over, it, it, it's like it lodged itself in your heart so deeply that, that a moment of significance broke through. Because significance and deep creativity usually lie on the far side of tedium and boredom. And that's true in all of life. It's not just a church service. It's not just in prayer, but in all of life, right? Like most of life, is it fair to say, there are, there are, are large chunks of tedium, just one foot in front of the other, just do the next thing over and over and over and over again. And yet they are punctuated by these, these acute moments of meaning and deep significance. And you actually don't get to the joy and the meaning and the significance without wading through that tedium. This morning, we're asking the question, what does it look like to practice thanksgiving, even in the tedium, in the boredom? What does it look like to practice, as you might call it, boring thanksgiving? And we get really good guidance in Psalm 136. Because in Psalm 136, King David, who wrote this, uh, is recounting some of the most significant moments in Israel's history. But there's nothing to suggest that this psalm was written in a significant moment. A lot of times, the psalms, when the psalms are written, we actually, in the text of the Bible, it gives us the setting. It'll say, you know, this psalm was written when King David was running for his life. Or it'll say, this was written at this major moment or at this celebration. We don't get that in Psalm 136. And I know it's kind of an argument from silence, so so don't take it as full gospel truth, but it's, it's not inappropriate to think that possibly, maybe probably, this psalm was just written in an ordinary setting on an ordinary day, when King David made a practice and a discipline of thinking back over how he had seen God in extraordinary ways. That even in our ordinary lives, we can think over the moments when God has shown himself to be extraordinary, and that changes us. Now, we don't have time. I wish we had time to go um, more into it. But I want to give you just a high-altitude overview of the things that David is giving thanks for. And then I want to show how, that, how we can kind of put some of those principles into practice in our lives. King David gives thanks in three for three circumstances in Israel's history. So first, the first chunk of verses, he looks over creation. When God created In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Creation was a very significant moment in Israel's history. The second is he gives thanks for uh, what we know as the Exodus, when God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. That was a, a crucial moment in their history. And then, thirdly, about 40 years later, when God delivered his people into the promised land that he had promised them. Three different instances, but in all three of them, he's making one point, and David is tying them together to make this one point that God never leads us somewhere without first preparing a home for us there, excuse me. God never, and some of you need to hear this this morning, God never leads us anywhere, I would say, without first preparing a home for us there. If you know anything about Jewish history, you know that it's basically a history of homelessness. That the Jews, with a couple of exceptions and a couple of centuries here and there, that this is... Over, over 4,000 years, have basically been homeless. And that finding a home had deep meaning for them. It still does. That's why, by the way, when the, when the modern nation of Israel was created in 1948, it was such a big deal for Jews around the world, because now we have a home again. Jews have lived most of their history homeless. And King David, reflecting over all of those moments, even moments of homelessness, is showing how God actually has a home in mind. He does this first through, like I said, creation, exodus, and, um, and the promised land. So let me give you a brief flyover of why those things matter. Creation, this is verses five through nine. I'll, I'll omit that his love endures forever, but here's what he says. By his understanding, God made the heavens. He spread out the earth upon the waters. He made the great lights, the sun to govern the day, the moon and the stars to govern the night. Now, if you just read this and you think, okay, God made everything, what's the big deal? But here, what David is doing is he's quoting very, very, almost word for word from Genesis 1. And Genesis 1, the Genesis account of creation, the first chapter of the Bible, is there to make a very specific point. And the point that the author of Genesis is making in Genesis 1 is that God never leads us somewhere without first making a home for us there. I'm going to step on a few toes here, I know. But let me just say this, Genesis 1 was not written to give us a scientific account of how exactly God made everything that he made. A lot of times, this is actually a very modern question, it's only been the past 100 or 150 years that humans have looked to Genesis 1 and tried to figure out, well, did God make everything in in six literal 24-hour days, or was it more metaphorical? Was it literally just 6,000 years ago, or is the language more figurative and poetic? That's a very new question. Ancient Hebrews would have never even asked that question. Here's the point that Genesis 1 is trying to make. And I should have printed this in the program, and I just forgot. But imagine, visually, imagine with me, there are six days of creation. So if you arrange the six days into two columns with three rows each, you have day one, two, and three... And then, right next to those, corresponding days four, five, and six. So, day one and four correspond. Day two and five correspond. And day three and six correspond. In day one, God creates, it says, the heavens and the earth, a vast expanse. In day two, God separates the heavens from the earth. But at that point, the earth is just water, there's no dry land. So, day one, you have the heavens. Day two, He separates the heavens from the waters. And in day three, God separates the water from the land. Now, correspondingly, in day four, what does God create? The sun, moon, and the stars. He's populating that environment he created. In day five, God creates what? Birds and fish to populate the heavens and the sea that he had created three days prior. And on day six, God creates animals and humans to populate the land. That he had separated out on day three. Genesis 1 and the creation account is making not a scientific point, but a deeply personal and theological point for a Jew. Because for a Jew whose whole existence has been nothing but homelessness, God is saying, I have made you a home, and I don't create a person or a thing without making a home for it first. When you're homeless, that's deeply meaningful. I may not see it right offhand, but God has a home for me. That's deeply meaningful. And David, to his people, is calling that into their memory, saying, remember, no matter what goes on, even when life feels ordinary, God is doing something, even if you don't see what he's doing. So give thanks, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That's the creation. Then David reminds us of the Exodus. This is about 1400 BC. This is historical verifiable fact. The Jews were slaves in Egypt. Every historian basically agrees about this. And in 1400 BC, very dramatically and miraculously, God leads leads his people out of slavery, out of Egypt. Now there were points in that story of the Exodus, and this is where I wish we could get deeper and I could show you those specifics in Exodus but there were points when the Jews were pretty sure that God was not leading them from, uh, into freedom, but to assure death and slaughter. And yet, they did get out. Even when they didn't see it, and they didn't see how it was possible, God made a way. That's what David is pointing out in verses 11 through 15 here. He brought Israel out from among Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm to him who divided the Red Sea asunder and brought Israel through the midst of it but swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. Those are the bad guys. Even when things looked like they could not get any worse, God cares for his people and is working on their behalf to bring them home. Lastly, David recalls the Israelites finally getting to the promised land that God had promised them. This is verses 17 through 24. It says, God struck down the great kings and killed the mighty kings. So again, those are bad guys, and in context. We have to explain that. Ancient Jews just knew this. Um, He gave their land as an inheritance to his servant Israel, to the one who remembered us in our low estate and freed us from our enemies. This is the Danumah, right? This is the place where the whole knot gets untied and we see that God has been working all along. Even if the Jews didn't understand how, even if they've been homeless for as far as they can remember, David is saying, God is working and he has a home and a plan and a place for you. In Psalm 136, what is David doing? He's, he's, he's reminding his people, God's people. It says, remember, when, it doesn't matter when times are good when times are bad. When times are extraordinary and when times are very, very ordinary and boring. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. This is a teaching tool to say that no matter what, no matter when, no matter how, whatever is going on in your life, give thanks to the Lord, for is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Forever. So as you, we're not talking about ancient Jews here, but we're talking Middle Street Baptist Church in 2022. As you look back over your history and your life, where do you see God's faithfulness? That's what scripture wants us to consider. There may be times in your life when it was very obvious what God was doing, and there may be times where you still don't know what God was doing. There may be times that it was a complete surprise, and there may have been times when you saw it coming. But where do you see evidence that that the same truth that was true then is still true now? That God never leads us somewhere without first making a home for us. He's taking us somewhere, even if we don't see where. Let me share one example from our life. This is just testimony. This is just how Jamie and I have seen God's goodness in our life. So most of you, I think, know, especially Jamie, my wife. Jamie has a genetic illness called cystic fibrosis. And we're really grateful to live near Boston where she gets awesome care. And one of the ways that she gets great care in Boston, obviously the hospitals in Boston are phenomenal, but there are a lot of uh, research firms and pharmaceutical companies working on cystic fibrosis drugs that are located in Boston. So just having those local connections really helps. In 20, I think this is 2014, maybe 2015, some, eight, eight, nine years ago, something like that. Uh, Jamie qualified for a drug trial, a new drug that they were researching. They didn't know if it was gonna work, and Jamie qualified. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever done a drug trial, but when you enroll, there's a lot of tests that they have to run just to make sure that you're the right this, that, and the other, and that your numbers and your symptoms and In Jamie's case, they had to make sure she actually had the the same genetic mutations that they were testing for. So she qualified for this study. We're getting ready to go through all of these tests. There are also a lot of rules, uh, just rules about drug trials. Because it's a new new method, they don't know how it's going to affect you. So, like, for instance, with this drug trial, you absolutely could not get pregnant. Because they didn't know how that uh, drug was going to affect a baby in utero that wasn't born yet. So Jamie qualified for this study. And we were, we were thrilled because with CF, it's, just, it's such a devastating illness and, and anything we can do. We're so excited about this. And she starts going through the routine tests, just all the administrative, you know, dotting their I's and crossing their T's. And then we found out that actually she was disqualified because 20 or 30 years ago, a geneticist had made a simple administrative error. So we went from being just absolutely elated that she had qualified for this drug study that we thought was really going to help to devastate it. it was, it's worse to be accepted and then disqualified than it would to just not qualify in the first place. You get like just the deep disappointment we're feeling in that moment. And we really struggled with this. I think this is, this is maybe 2014. I think it's 2015. Well, in 2016, Elliot, our first daughter, was born. In 2018, Jamie qualified for a second drug trial. And she actually, the second drug trial she qualified for, she got the very last spot in the country and only because somebody else backed out. And in that second trial, there was a 50-50 chance that she would get either the drug or a placebo. And yet within a week of taking that, whatever it was, we didn't know, Jamie said, I've never felt this good in my life. She told, I remember she told me, this is the first time I've been able to walk up a flight of stairs without losing my breath. It was, it was sheer, sheer miraculous. There's no other explanation for it. So clearly, she got the drug, not the placebo. And it's actually been such a successful drug that the drug company brought it to market, and now it's been life-altering uh, for thousands, maybe tens of thousands of patients worldwide. Now, when Jamie was disqualified from the first study, we were not given thanks, I can assure you. We were not giving thanks, and yet, had she been a part of that first drug trial, we wouldn't have been able to have Elliot, because remember, you couldn't get pregnant on that drug. Had she been a part of that first trial, she may have gotten a trial drug, and she may have gotten a placebo, but it really wouldn't have mattered, because that drug didn't do anything and quickly scrapped the project. And had she qualified for that first trial, she would not have qualified for the second trial where she ended up getting this drug that has been, I'm not exaggerating, a miracle in our lives. Like, it has literally given her decades of life. When Jamie was disqualified from that first trial, we were not giving thanks. Now, we look back at the process and at that disqualification, we give thanks. For the Lord is God, and his steadfast love endures forever. That even when you're homeless, God is making a home for you. Even when there's no possible way that life can work out, God is working in the background in ways that we just have no idea about, you see? So give thanks to the Lord, for he's good. Whether your circumstances are good or not, the Lord is good. And we can give thanks because his steadfast love endures forever. This isn't, this isn't just us, by the way. I, uh, visit a lot of our um, other members who are homebound or in nursing homes. I call people who are sick. And um, there are two conversations in the past two or three weeks that have really stuck out to me. And in both cases, I've been talking to to somebody, and I won't mention them by name. I think they're both watching online and you know who you are. Um, And they have both, they're just in really poor life situations. Significant illness, significant life change and transition, and uncertainty. And both have looked me in the eyes, uh, or one said on the phone, like, "I'm so thankful to God." And both times, my gut reaction has been like, "How?" But look at, and yet here they are teaching me about what it looks like to give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. That even when my life doesn't seem very good, God is still good. You see, when life is good, we give thanks. When it's not good, we give thanks. When it's boring, we give thanks. When it's extraordinary, we give thanks. But especially when life is just kind of normal and ho-hum, we give thanks. Here's why that matters. Because, Because giving thanks is a practice, it's a discipline, it's like exercise. Like the more you do it, the more fit you get, and the more in shape you get. And your life may be boring right now, it may feel like there's not much going on right now, but there will come a time, I guarantee you, when it gets spicy. There will come a time when you just suffer. And if you're able to cultivate the practice of thanksgiving now in the boring and ordinary moments, then you will know how to give thanks in those moments of suffering, just like those two people I've talked to in the past two or three weeks. They didn't just just grow into this all of a sudden. No, I I know them. I know their lives and their steady faithfulness. They have practiced thanksgiving and a pursuit of a relationship with Jesus their whole lives,
0: even when life was just
1: really ordinary, and that has given them the fitness, so to speak, the spiritual fitness to endure a period of deep suffering and uncertainty and still be able to give thanks to God. It's like, um, if 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 anybody's a runner, I don't know if you're a runner, my thesis is that nobody actually enjoys running. Like people like having run, but nobody actually enjoys running. And if you say you enjoy running, you're just lying or you're not self-aware. It's just not possible. Uh, But if you're a runner, if you've ever run a marathon, like, you don't, you don't start training for a marathon the day before the starting gun fires, do you? I, I'm, not a, I'm not a doctor, but I would imagine that it's probably not possible for all except a very tiny sliver of people to just jump up and run 26.2 miles without having trained for it. If you're a marathon runner, I mean, you train for months, maybe for years to get your body into the kind of shape it has to be in so that when that test comes, when that moment of trial comes, you're able to log that marathon and to finish it. But you know how you get to the finish line? It's months and years of steady, frankly, boring miles that you put under your sneakers, running, 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 so that when the moment comes, you can finish the race. There's been this line uh, every, every month, first Sunday of every month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper here, and there's this line in liturgy that I use that I've always kind of wondered about it. I've never thought a lot about it. I, just, I think I learned a little more about it this week. So I always, I, I stand at that table, and I say, on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus uh, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And I never really thought much about that. And I started thinking more about that this week that when he had given thanks. Now, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. It was during the Passover celebration, Jewish Passover. And the Jewish Passover is all about the slaughter of a lamb whose blood is going to take away the sin of God's people. And Jesus knew that he was the fulfillment of the Passover. In other words, that just like the lamb covered the sin of Israel, Jesus' blood was going to cover the sin of God's people. And he knew that was coming less than 24 hours in, 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 in the future. In other words, Jesus does the last meal with his disciples. And he knows that he's less than 24 hours from an agonizing death. And he gives thanks. Have you ever thought about I've never thought about this. Maybe some of you, I hope maybe some of you have. But Jesus gives thanks. How can he give thanks in that moment? One. It's probably not unfair to assume that Jesus practiced gratitude. We know that he practiced daily prayer with God, that he practiced this when life was at least as ordinary as it can possibly be if you're Jesus. But secondly, Jesus knew that God never leads us somewhere without first having made a home for us. Remember how the Apostles' Creed goes? We recite this every month during the Lord's Supper. He was crucified, died, was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again, seated at the right hand of God Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. In other words, Jesus knew that there was a home. He knew somehow, somewhere, we don't know what exactly he knew or understood, because remember, he's still human, but, but that even though Good Friday was going to be agonizing, Easter Sunday was coming. God never leads us somewhere without having a home in mind for us first. He knew that God would not even lead him to the cross without having glory in mind after that. And it's not only true for Jesus, that's true for you and me. Because it's only through the death and the resurrection of Jesus that we, you and I, have a home to look forward to a new creation, a place of peace, a place of rest, a place of joy, where God says he's making all things new. That even our suffering, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, he says even our suffering is preparing in us and for us for an eternal way to glory beyond all comparison. You see, God never leads us somewhere. He never leads you anywhere without making a home for you first. He's taking you somewhere. Even if you don't see it, even if you don't get it, even if you don't understand it, even if you are sure that God that you could have done it better, God is taking you somewhere. He has it only for you. So give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Say it with me. And his love endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks. Sometimes we don't know why. Sometimes we're pretty sure that you're doing uh, kind of a lousy job and we think we could do it better. But it seems that almost always we get through it and we look back and we see that you are working and we didn't see how. So teach us when life is good and when life is bad, when life is exciting and when life is ordinary, to give thanks to the
0: Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Amen.